0: I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 36 of CaroPop. Pop. This is part two of our conversation with Gerald Casale, co-founder and co-leader of the band Devo. We conducted part 1 the morning after Devo played a concert in New York City and resumed the conversation that afternoon. In part 1, we dug into the making of those first 4 Devo albums from Are We Not Men through New Traditionalists and how Kasali worked with fellow leader and frontman Mark Mothersbaugh as well as producers Brian Eno and Ken Scott. Kasali related frustrations with Mothersbaugh, saying that trying to get him to agree to perform Devo shows now is like pulling teeth. Casale said he single-handedly keeps the spirit of Devo alive, and he lamented the tribalism, as he called it, that crept into the relationships between the band's two sets of brothers, Gerald and the late Bob Casale, and Mark and Bob Mothersbaugh. We left off discussing our ominous cultural landscape and the ways artists might respond. We pick up in part two, going deeper and darker on that topic. People used to think music could change the world. Do we still hold that belief? Or are we just fooling ourselves as we head toward the abyss? How badly have we devolved and what can we do? Gerald Casale has some thoughts. We also return to our breakdown of Devo's albums, starting with the fifth one Oh No, it's Devo. It's lively, with songs such as Peekaboo, That's Good, and the Casale song Big Mess popping out of the speakers with evil clown energy. I'm a man with roy thomas baker who worked with queen and the cars come to produce that album dark clouds were building as the band grew more reliant on synths the tension between sounding human and machine like was evident on the next album shout the band's last for warner brothers for 26 years what went wrong there and what caused the band to pack it in a couple of albums later Mark Mothersbaugh focused on writing music for television, such as Pee Wee's Playhouse and Rugrats, plus films including Wes Anderson's Rushmore, The Royal Tenenbaums, and The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. What does Kasali think of Mothersbaugh's scoring work? Kasali, who made many of Devo's videos, directed videos for the Cars, Rush, and Foo Fighters, and he worked for the British team of Godly and Cream, formerly of 10CC. How did those experiences go? Kasali formed a side project called Jihad Jerry and the Evil Doers, which featured Devo guest appearances. An album, Mine is Not a Holy War, was released on iTunes in 2006 and on Record Store Day this year in April with the addition of a new track, I'm Gonna Pay You Back. But the real Devo reunion album came with 2010's Something for Everybody, which updated vintage Devo energy with such songs as Don't Shoot, I'm a Man, fresh and what we, do. what we do
1: is what we do it's all the same there's nothing new
0: can we expect another Devo album sometime um you'll we'll have to hear what Kasali has to say meanwhile can they interest you in some Devo NFTs also are there any old Devo songs that they now get flagged for performing please enjoy part two of this carol pop conversation with Gerald Kasali The philosophy of devolution was is there's something sort of inherently pessimistic about it. Did you imagine we'd still be where we are? No. No,
1: we we didn't. We thought we were just being kind of, you know, taking a pose, being like smart ass intellectual guys, um, canaries in the coal mine, warning people so that it didn't happen. Uh, We never thought that when you read things like Animal Farm and 1984 and Brave New World, that those were in fact primers. Those were in fact like textbooks, you know, like like the manuals you get with a new appliance. Like so here's how you do it, right?
0: My high school senior daughter uh, picked up Handmaid's Tale and started watching it on television at the same time. And I just thought, you know, this was supposed to just be fiction for her. <laughs> right. It was supposed to be ridiculous. So In it's PR, it, Thanks yeah. to
1: SOTUS, it's about to happen.
0: Yeah. And I was asking you like right before we sort of took our little break, just the um you know, just how art can respond to this. Or is this something where you need to I mean, obviously you need to move beyond art to respond to all this, but like what is sort of the creative person's outlet to respond to all of this?
1: It's you know, we talked about this uh, in part one. I, I feel that the attack on humanity is so egregious and so over the top that an artistic response is kind of toothless. You know, it's, it's kind of uh, irrelevant. Uh, you, If you look at history, what you really realize is that A, any kind of democratic rule of law was A, an experiment, a relatively recent experiment and an anomaly in the history of man and the organization of mankind into social groups with leaders. And it's always been about uh, willing to willingness to give up your life to protect dignity and freedom because the pigs are after you every day, every minute. And it never changes. It isn't like you sign a piece of paper and now it's written in stone forever that everything's cool. No, you fight, you win this freedom, and now you're going to fight and fight and fight again just to scratch your way back to square
0: one when I grew up as sort of a child of the the seventies, you know, and sort of looking back on the sixties without having been, you know, a conscious kid during the sixties, there was a sense of, Oh, there was all this terrible stuff that had happened, but we're moving beyond right. that. And, and, and there was also, so it was always this feeling of sort of optimism, like, Oh, we're, that stuff is in the past. And, you know, the KKK and all that's in the way past and segregation, all of these things, you know, we're, 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 we're sort of moving. And even more recently there were sort of, you know, when Obama got elected, there was a, these, oh, we're in a post-racial society, you know, sure. before you had this whole yeah. backlash to it. And also well, growing cool. up, there was this this sense that you know, music could change the world right. and art could change the world, and and that somehow music was this unifying force that created empathy and bridges among cultures. And I'm wondering if that it was, was nice true then. Tale. It
1: was a nice fairy tale. I believed it. I definitely. If you would have known Jerry in 1970, uh, I believed
0: it. Do you think music could change the world then and then it can't anymore? Or do you think that it's always been sort of the same?
1: I think I believed that fantasy back then. And, uh, and then you find out that you were silly. You're embarrassed that you would think that.
0: Do you think music made the world a better place for a while, and maybe now it it's makes it a better to...
1: place for a few people in any given moment? Yeah, you know, it, we'd be worse off without it. Let's put it that way.
0: Right. But you had a period where there were a lot of people who believed all you needed is love, for instance, or give peace a chance. I mean, there were sort of these these songs that were rallying cries. Now, did that actually create more love or more peace in the world? I mean, I guess you could no. debate that. No,
1: but, you know, it, people do need, unfortunately, they do need false hope. They, knew, they do need ideas that, that justify the pain we go through being mortals on this planet. This is a slave planet. It's a planet of warriors, of people that are enslaved. That's what this is. This is crude and low. Planet of the Apes... Was actually brilliant
0: series, right? <laughs> have you now? It's, I'm assuming that your worldview on all this has gotten darker over the years and decades, and maybe particularly in the last, I don't know, six years or something like that. Or have you always sort of felt this way, and now it's kind of coming to fruition in a way you feared? Or
1: no, I didn't always feel this way. Like I said, I was, you know, I probably could have been accused of being although a thoughtful one. I was a hippie. The live and let live saw the, saw the possibilities and the fantasies and the beauty of what could happen and thought there were just some bad apples, but the barrel wasn't rotten. You know, you get rid of some of the bad apples. Right. Uh, you know, but after even after May 4th, it, that was all over that soon. After, after watching my friends get shot and killed by the National Guard and seeing who controls the writing of history and how that was presented to the masses through the media. And you saw how it really worked. It was a simple red pill moment, to use the cliche of the matrix. You were never the same again. You saw exactly how it really works and how everything you'd been fed was just a bullshit, bourgeois, consumer fantasy fucking lie. America, the brand of freedom, America was not, was not. They were involved in, you know, inexcusable, indefensible, uh, imperialistic wars for compromised reasons. We were doing the same things we were accusing people of. We were gaslighting the world no different than Russia was at home. The most racist country on the planet. The crap that black people in America have to live with is just
0: unconscionable. It doesn't even seem real. But for a while, I bet you thought it was getting better, maybe. Or did you always? Yeah, sure. (laughs) But now where we are now, it's hard to sort of feel that. Full on de-evolution, full on. So are you writing songs right now? I do, yeah. I do. I've written,
1: you know, the latest song I wrote that I stuck on the um, reissue of the Giadgeria and the Evildoers record, where they were added tracks, was uh, I'm Gonna Pay You Back. Right. And I did a video with my good friend Davey Force to that. Davey is a CG artist that's been playing with artificial intelligence programs. So we... We took some look i'd been trying to do for like five years and couldn't do it because even as a director i was limited to live action i'm not an animation expert he found a way to do it which was take live action and turn it into something that turns it one degree away from reality into the marvel comic book realm of like live action comics and uh and that's what you saw jihad fight with his alter ego Jerry from Devo
0: and the song too. When I was listening to that album and I knew that they, it's, you know, the sticker said, you know, includes the, the new single, I'm going to pay you back. And in listening to it, I thought, well, this sounds like it's, this is reflecting the last few years yeah. as opposed to right. you know, the, the rest of it, which was what from 2006, Four. seven, 2004. Yeah, well, I wrote okay. it in 2004.
1: Didn't, right didn't see the light of day until two years later.
0: Right, right. So, so anyway, but it was it was in that it, it was it was done during originally back in the, the, the George W. Well, years, and, right. and now. But this sounded like. But, but I'm going to pay you back. Sounded like it was coming out of the, you know, the Trump years. Yeah. So, exactly. So you so you've been writing more yeah. along those lines oh, yeah. since then.
1: Oh yeah, and I'm going to use the same video technique as, in I'm going to pay you back. I'm going to make a new video, and I wrote uh, a song called. Uh, sex is a weapon and um, uh, a few others
0: are you trying to get a new devo album going no i've given up on that so there's no there's no enthusiasm from the other side of your creative partnership correct that's too bad something for everybody is a terrific record like that was a that was a really nice uh they had a lot of energy to it and uh you know like if we were talking about uh don't shoot i'm a man i mean that's you know
1: i love that song and i loved um i loved fresh and i loved uh what we do and one that's very unexpected which is no place like home
0: right no it's a I, i really i really enjoy that album a lot and um you know, it has it has a it, and it, and it's sort of makes it sounds like it's sort of the follow up to Oh No, It's Devo at that point.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we couldn't help but be us. Right. It's, you know, I hear like that. I hear what you're saying. And I also heard it influences a freedom of choice all the way back to that.
0: Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Because because they're, they're again, they're hooky songs. They've got electronic things going on, but it also has. You know a human human pulse behind it yeah um, but there's sometimes where the band will sort of come back and do their comeback album after a long time and it'll be like oh they sound a little slower and you know less energetic and and i did not feel that way about that record at all i thought that it was uh i, th- I thought it really sort of jumped out and i was re-listening to it again um you know and and i'm just like yep this is how i remember it <laughs> We were talking about Oh No, it's Steve-O and, and Roy Thomas Baker. It's a very good sounding record. Um, you know, At that point, he was known for, I mean, among, among other things, but like, yeah, the Queen and the Cars. Uh, I, I'm wondering if he sort of like suggested sort of stacking some vocals with you guys or whether it was like, no, this is not what we do.
1: <laughs> well, what we were hoping is that after that experience of uh, new traditionalists, Uh, We were hoping that he could capture the sonics of these songs in a way that popped on radio, because he was so good at making these songs sound incredible on the radio, which is what you had to do then. And, uh, And so I thought, well, what if we sounded as good as the cars, but with our substance and our message, that's a good combo. Right. Right. Like, like here's songs that are a lot more deep and a lot more substance, but they sound as earwormy
0: as the cars. So were you happy with how it came out?
1: There's a lot of it I was happy with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I thought so. I mean, again, that that album was to, for me. And, and it's interesting because I actually at some point sort of in the earlier days of CDs, there was like a CD that had freedom of choice and that together like it just kind of i think maybe there was one where they had like you know duty now and new traditionals were bundled but those two were bundled together and it made sense because those two sound good together Uh uh-huh yeah so i think i saw that tour at the tower theater in philadelphia i think it was a freshman at the time when that came out and and you guys were performing in front of a video screen right that's my memory of it right so were the feelings coming out of that album good as a band or was it, that was sort of when you felt like you were kind of fracturing a bit?
1: There were dark clouds on the horizon.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and what was the reason for that?
1: Uh, who knows? I mean, there's so many reasons. It's just the, uh, the ravages of time. Also the cultural times we were in the way radio and commercial tastemakers were uh, oriented towards not receiving Devo, being resistant to Devo, and stuff going on within the band over all this use of of just sequencer lines and, you know, programming as opposed to playing. Right. Uh, Well, you remember Time Out for Fun. Absolutely. I mean, the preamble that I wrote there where the spud talks to you, right? The spud boy talks to you. Uh, just think of what he's saying. You know, he's talking about dark clouds and the crystal ball and, you know, uh, all that, all the terrorism that was going on in a foreign land, you know. And it was time for a little time out for fun because everything was so dark and dire. Right. It really was then.
0: Well, yeah. Even then, and then you have Peekaboo, where there's all this laughter, but it's so demonic. It's not like it's not like feel feel good laughter. It's like, oh my God, it's a horror. A horror movie laughter. Yeah. Well, um,
1: we, we hated clowns. You know, clowns. <laughs> we had a special hatred for clowns. We thought clowns were a horror movie. We thought they were creepy.
0: Yeah, you're not the only one. So, <laughs> Devo really anticipated so many of the sounds of the '80s on, you know, your earlier. Records and then when the '80s kind of caught up to to Devo, then it was like, I don't know, something like Shout. It, there's, you know, the the sounds of it are more sort of the sounds of the '80s as opposed to anticipating mm-hmm. the sounds of the '80s, maybe. Yeah, and, and I think maybe that's the album that sounds a little more sort of synthetic, and you know, in a way that that I don't know, it doesn't it doesn't reflect as the energy of the previous ones, perhaps.
1: I I did not like Shout.
0: Yeah. Where was the band at that point doing that? Like, like, so you got Shout, you got what? Total Devo and Smooth Noodle Maps. Like, how do you view that period overall? Well, Shout was the
1: last Warner Brothers record. And Shout was with a real budget, but that's when Mark just fell in love with the Fairlight and that's all he wanted to operate on. And I really didn't like what I was hearing and what he was wanting to do. And I wanted to talk about it. And I wanted to do move in a different direction. And he was just uh, of a attitude like lump it or leave it. Like, here's what's happening. If you don't like it, stay home. As if I was some side man in a band, not the guy that founded it, not the guy that wrote half the songs. So it was like, oh boy, this is fun. And, and I just, I didn't like the energy. Uh, it just sounded sterile. And um, not Devo. Where did you want to take it? Well, I said if we were going to use the Fairlight, I thought we should become Devo's Spaceman Caveman, meaning only use the Fairlight for some very, very unsettling, intermittent, hugely synthetic sounds that we're playing to that only come up compositionally, you know, every 16 beats or every eight bars or whatever, and the rest is Devo going back to the cave, but with this high-tech, frightening outer space element of the spare light, that would have excited me.
0: Yeah, the mid 80s just sonically were such a weird time. And, and I feel like they sort of, like like a lot of groups, sort of most dated records are from like 84, 85,
1: they
0: all sound like cocaine. You know, like, you like cocaine. <laughs> like I was, I was a you know big Elvis Costello and the Attractions fan. And Goodbye Cruel World came out in '84, and it, it also like you listen to that album now, and that's the one that's so time stamped. Um, and there's a lot of the Yamaha DX7 on it, and it's yeah. just the drum sound on it. Uh, you know, I, I've talked to a couple of people from XTC who are uh, Terry Chambers, their drummer was very much talking about like what a big influence diva was on early XTC. And I hadn't made that connection and then made total sense when I thought about it. Right. Um, but uh, you know, and he was out of the band by that point, but I think their album from 85, you know, had all this kind of programmed drums on it too. And it just sort of, that was like sort of this period where the human element was getting away and With Devo, it's just interesting because there was always that sense of like, it's, it's the humans and the machines kind of working together to make everything work. And so when the machines start overtaking it, that's, you know, maybe a problem.
1: That was a problem.
0: So what finally happened when you guys split? Was it just sort of, was it more of an artistic thing? Like, you know what, we've sort of had our, our run and we want to do other things? Or was there more of a, you know what, we're just sick of each other. We need a break.
1: Well, yeah, um, Mark only became interested in in what he could do for scoring in some kids' TV shows, and then that jumped into a feature. And uh, he, you know, that's a different discipline. It's apples and oranges from a group creating something that nobody even knows that they want to hear yet, and then suddenly they want to hear what they didn't even anticipate um scoring is like a problem solving thing it's like me being hired to do tv commercials i'm not the primary uh creative i'm the secondary creative they come to me with an idea and they're trying to figure out a way to get it done and make it work and they're looking to me to problem solve and do that because of my understanding of the medium and, and my directing skills and you know here, here's a storyboard, you know, here, here's the way we can do it, here's a shot list. It's the same thing uh, with scoring. It's like they come and go, can, you know, we want something that's like Danny Elfman's Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, whatever. Uh, and And then, you know, because you have enough technical facility, you go, oh, something like this? So you're solving their problems. It didn't start with you. It wasn't your movie. You didn't go, I'm going to write a horror score here. You know, it's, you're being hired.
0: Um, and right. so, so... So is Bernard Herrmann by Hitchcock, and you still you know, remember those scores.
1: Well, those are exceptions. Those are exceptions. That's when art comes back into it.
0: Right. You know,
1: but that's not, that's not the Hollywood
0: machine. That's not how it works. But, right, so someone like Wes Anderson is working kind of outside that.
1: Right, and there you go. That's what people remember when when Mark got to do something for Life Aquatic, they still remember that. Cuz there was some thoughtful aesthetic process going
0: on there. Is there any of that music that you sort of have just listened to and thought, "Oh, that's just a nice piece of music?"
1: Sure. Yeah. Of course. You, I think we all remember exceptional
0: pieces of music, don't we? It's like sure. But like like like, what were, what are examples of stuff that he's done, sort of solo, that you thought, oh, that would be yeah, that's a that's a nice that's a nice piece of work,
1: Mark? Yeah. Uh, God, it's hard to, off the top of my head to name something specific, but it was actually for a kids' TV show, It wasn't one of his feature films. And I'm trying to remember what it was. It wasn't Rugrats. Um, and it was interesting because it, it wasn't so busy and silly and cacophonous like doodle, 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 doodle. You know, like, doodle, doodle, doodle. It, it was more structured and um, minimal so that, you know, you could digest it. And it was nice. Um, trying to remember. Wish it would I guess it's Alzheimer's not popping into my head here.
0: No, I have that all the time. I just like, I, I, I'll be like, what was that person's name again? I'm doing yeah. that. So it's, yeah. And you were directing videos also. And you, and you worked I for the lots, cars. Yeah, you, did, you, did the, you did the touch and go video for them. And you did I started, Rush.
1: I started in 1980 directing for other bands. I did touch and go and Panorama for them. Right. And that led to some stuff for Rush,
0: yeah, I saw Peter that. Mystic Rhythms by Rush. There you go.
1: And then I... Was, Foo
0: Fighters I, you did?
1: Yeah, I was hired by the English team, Godly and Cream, at Media Lab in London. I worked for them for six months, and I did Blomange and Jane Sibbery and... God, I can't remember some of these English groups I shot stuff for, but I was getting good by being able to work. And then I came back, and the 90s started happening right then, and and yeah, I did Silver Chair and the Foo Fighters and so many others, um, names I can't even remember now. They all most of these groups I did that were so highly touted, their deals lasted two years and then they disappeared.: um,
0: You and Godley and Krim could have like had a sort of spin-off 10CC Devo band or something.
1: Yeah. Oh, I like those two guys. They were great, and I was, unfortunately present when their wives who hated each other broke them up i watched the partnership break up
0: oh that's too bad i, I, I noticed that they hadn't been doing stuff for a while and then i don't know Krem recorded some stuff i mean uh godly recorded some stuff with graham Goldman. so then that was his other half of 10 cc but yeah. they never they never really all came together at least what
1: happened it was once again the triumph of Pettiness, stupidity, and tribalism.
0: Well, that's true. What? What was it? Yeah. Well, I can. I'll. I'll ask them at some point. I'll. I'll get them on the podcast and say, "Why did you guys break up?" Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they. They're because. They're, I appreciate it because they, because I like those, you know, early 10 CC records and even, and some of the godly and creme stuff too. Cause it's right. just very creative. And then the, and they really sort of pushed everything forward with those videos mm-hmm. and um, you know, and your videos are, are a lot of fun too. And did, are the cars the ones who put you on to Roy Thomas Baker when you were doing those, the panorama stuff? Cause that was like right before uh, Oh no, it's Tevo.
1: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, w- I was, um, I actually had a good relationship with uh, Ben, or who's deceased now, right. and not a bad one with Rick, although with Rick, you never knew where you stood. He was pretty inscrutable and removed. But I was hanging out with them in their studio on Newberry Street and going out socially with them, and uh, yeah, that's how Roy Thomas Baker got into the, the mix
0: in terms of you go, looking at what was going on with Devo and, and you guys had broken up, did you have sort of thoughts about like, I mean, I mean, obviously you talked about the sort of the, how you wanted to use the Fairlight in like the mid eighties during this break of time between, you know, between smooth noodle maps and um, something for everybody. Did you have other thoughts on, Oh, these would be sort of interesting directions for us to go in that we hadn't gone in musically or just- yeah. Yeah. Musically yeah well for instance i i mean i'll throw like the jihad jerry uh record there are a few things happening on there even though it's basically you know a lot of it is you and the devo guys but like there's there's a lot more sort of background vocals and kind of call and response sort of stuff which i don't associate with devo and even the song beehive that's kind of like a blues song and, and i don't think of I i don't think a devo is going into blues so was, i was wondering if that was my roots i
1: i was in a blues band that was pretty famous in ohio called the Numbers Band, 1560-75, the Numbers Band. And I played with them at these clubs like in Akron and Kent that were very popular at the time. So I was playing at JB's and The Cove and someplace in Akron, I can't remember the name of. And the lead singer, Bob Kidney, uh, gave me a true schooling in the blues. I mean, he had a collection that filled a whole wall in his house, a collection of vinyl from Imperial Records, VJ Records, Chess yeah. Records, all the best recordings from the 50s and 60s of, you know, Willie Dixon, John Lee Hooker, all of them. And we'd, he'd play me all these deep cuts off of their records, and I got really sucked in for a while. I was Mr. Blues Man. Beehive was my nod to, the, to my blues uh,
0: roots, were there times when you came into Devo with, you know, whether it was a blues song or something else, and there was a sense of, oh, that's a good song, but it's not Devo because that sure. doesn't fit our identity. Sure. sure. Yeah. Like, you know, like too- the, the, a sensitive acoustic ballad or something like that. Yeah, it was
1: too genre. It was too, We we always had an agreement that if it sounded like something that already existed and was already on the radio, we weren't going to pursue it.
0: listening to mostly at the time as well like like who were the bands that you sort of got excited to see or play with when when all this was going on
1: well of course in the beginning it was very eclectic i mean besides actually seeing these people like john lee hooker live and holland wolf live and uh, i i saw even Sunhouse live i mm. saw james cotton live i saw Paul Butterfield live, Then I, but then I was seeing, you know, I saw Captain Beefheart live, and, and I saw uh, Morton Sabotnick put on a performance with his uh, Moog synthesizers. And um, I saw Bob Marley. I saw Ravi Shankar. I mean, it was like anybody interesting and good, I saw them. I saw Jimi Hendrix twice. I saw you know the rolling stones on their first tour of america i saw led zeppelin on their first tour i saw roxy music on their first tour i saw david bowie on the diamond dogs tour when he hit cleveland ohio this stuff was all influencing me you know and i was listening to terry riley and philip glass
0: when you're writing now are you writing on a keyboard or a synth or how do you how do you do it I've written
1: on a, a keyboard, but mostly on my bass. Mostly on my bass or an acoustic guitar.
0: It, it would have been interesting to hear Devo sort of go back and do sort of... I mean, like, again, you don't want everything to be looking back or whatever. But to, but to, to almost do like this, this another guitar record, like, you know, Are We Not Men or something. That'd be, where... That'd be great. <laughs> you say that like you would you would love to do that, but it's never going to happen. Yeah, I just... I don't see
1: the spirit being shared, you know.
0: When, you, when I saw you on that tour and you were doing that album and Freedom of Choice, was, did you have a feeling like one night was more fun than the other, like one album was more fun than the other to perform?
1: You know, since I love both of the albums we were doing, it was equal, even though, and in fact, the fact that it was so different and we were switching back and forth made me like each one more than having to just do one thing every night.
0: Well, it was very cool to be able to like come consecutive nights and see both albums and, and be, both incarnations because they are different and they're both, you know, fantastic records. But the, and the, yeah, at the same time, there's a different sort of sound and energy. Yeah. To each one.
1: And we were trying to channel the aesthetic and energy that we felt then when we did the rep, you know, and, and it was it was possible to do that because it was focused. You know, it's like, here's what you're doing. You're doing 1978. So by the end of that night, you're there. You know, you've gone back. It's back to
0: the future. Right. So your, your brother, um, very sadly, is no longer with us. I know. You're still doing Devo shows. Does it, it must be very different to be on stage with him not there at this point. And sort of how do you deal with that?
1: Well, I miss him so much. I, I never took his phone number out of my phone. That's I can't do it. You know, he's been dead eight years now, and his phone number's in my phone. Yeah. And I worked with him almost daily. And so when I'm on stage and we're playing those songs, I pretend he's there.
0: What are the things that he added musically to the band that your casual listener would not have realized? Hmm. <laughs> um,
1: Maybe how much work it takes to sound simple and stupid
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you guys just you know there was there was there was such an interlocking of all these different parts, but it never sounded overly complicated, like yeah, you, exactly. like you you managed to sort of get these musical ideas across, even though you know when you watch the videos and you know, see performance footage, you know you see that everyone's doing something very different, but it all kind of works together, yeah, yeah,
1: i that's what I like.
0: What do you think of where we are culturally now, by the way? Do you, are there songs that, is it, is it, are there like older songs that it's harder to pull out now? Or, you know, do you get flat cultural flack for any of anything that you've played in the past? Because they are like, well, you know, you could do that in 78, but right. now it's not so great. Right. Like the Rolling Stones Brown Sugar. Right. <laughs> right. Well, you know, we're like, you know, what one of my kids, when they heard the song Mongoloid, they're like, Oh, that's not a good term. And I'm just like, well, you know, this is, if you listen to the song, it's not an offensive song, but the term no. takes some people back. And I'm wondering, you know, can you still perform that song and have everyone be fine with it?
1: Yeah, well, you're you're right. In politically correct culture where there's as much uh, censorship from the left as there is from the right, Mongoloid is just automatically a red flag because you got the name. Right. I'd have to sing. Down syndrome, he had Down syndrome, you know, but we weren't making fun of the mongoloid. We were making fun of the guy who made fun of the mongoloid. We were saying, he's the mongoloid. You know, he's the mongoloid he's making fun of. But But, of course, that's just that irony is lost on a modern audience. They don't understand satire. They don't understand irony. They just just accept everything like point blank. Like zeros and ones information you know and they're well, told what to think they're told this this is okay this isn't
0: well it's it's hard to imagine like someone like Randy Newman like the career that he had specifically the, the stuff he put out in the 70s yeah like it would just be it would be subject to quote unquote controversy if he did it now because he'd,
1: he'd be canceled
0: yeah i hope not but um it would be yeah now he managed to mix the the you know the movie work and still put out the good records too. Yeah, what's the what's the most recent album or song that you've heard that you've loved?
1: Oh, it's a few years old now, but when um, Donald Glover under the name of Childish Gambino did "This Is America," the song. Oh yeah. America, I I just was blown away, and I I was jealous. I thought that has the. Substance and power and directness of early Devo. It's some message that we should be talking about. He did it. And I was moved by it.
0: What did you think of that video? I was disturbed
1: by it in a good way.
0: Yeah. What kind of music do you listen to these days? Do you listen to like a lot of hip hop or do you, you know, you I try to listen it? to
1: everything. You know, I just listened to the new Kendrick Lamar single, I thought that was really good. I like the changes it went through. I like, I mean, he's, he's very creative and he's very smart. Right. Most of it, you know, it's, you pick a genre and most of the genre is stupid. I mean, people go, yeah, hip hop sounds all alike. Well, so does heavy metal. You know, it's like bad is bad, but good is good. And there are great songs here and there that pop out in a number of genres. And the other song that blew me away was the, the late Bob Dylan. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a pinhead kind of Alzheimer's genius. I don't know what you'd call it, but I think it's 11 minutes
0: long, and it's called A Murder Most Foul. Murder Most Foul. Yeah, I think it's like 15 or something like oh that. Oh, my God. Might be longer than that. I think it might oh, be longer you know than what? that. It's an amazing it's song. Masterpiece.
1: It's a pinhead Masterpiece. Even though he's sounding like a guy that's half dead and he's mumbling, his devastating summation of the 20th century is right on the money.
0: I'm also always happy when someone who's been around that long reminds us that he's still relevant and that you know, you can be making amazing music when you're in your late 70s or even 80. And he's Absolutely. touring.
1: Absolutely. I mean, he just showed the kids, fuck you. Here, write something heavier than this, pal. It was amazing.
0: McDonald's, I think it just settled over their like unauthorized use of the energy domes. Yeah. Did those become like collector's items? Can you find, you know, do you have like a, you know, alternate sort of...
1: I don't even have one. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. I mean, they're, th- those people are brutal. They basically threatened us, if you can imagine that. They said, if you keep this up, here's what we're going to do to you as if we did something wrong, even though they were totally in the wrong. And then they made us sign a non disclosure agreement. So I am not allowed to even talk about what the settlement was. Honest to God, to this day, it's in perpetuity.
0: Yeah, I think that was the case when I talked to you back in, like, what, 2009 or whatever. So I was hoping maybe, but yeah, I, guess, I guess those things just hold forever. But they're, but they're gone, though. They, they quit doing their little ripoff. Oh,
1: yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> so, all right. Well, what's the next thing that we can expect from Devo?
1: Gee, I don't know. You know, I would like to say there is something very much. I, I'm working on, a, you know, for years we've had this story that we wanted to turn into a graphic novel and a musical. And now we have people that are ready to, to make it happen. And it's just a matter of, you know, overcoming marks and transients. There's also a a company that does um, NFTs. And uh, there was this idea from Devo about doing the, musical equivalent of what the crypto punks did when they did that series of portraits where they were using visual AI programs so that there's no two eight bit portraits that are the same. Like when you buy one of those, you're actually getting something of value because the next guy's is different. Right. That's never really happened in music. And we think we figured out a way with, this, with these programmers to do that in music so that there would be no mass release of this new Devo song because there wouldn't be a song. It would be written in a series of two-bar programs where we know that no matter what the AI technology does to it to progressively mutate it, that they can't ruin it. Any two parts rearranged will sound good together. Any length will sound good together. And any rearrangement of the lyrics, it's like William Burroughs' cut-ups, right? It will still be poetic, even if it's not a linear narrative. So you would get, your, your version of the Devo song would be different than the next guy's. And there would only be like a thousand versions available. So would this have lyrics on it or is it just an an instrumental piece? No, it'd be lyrics on it and each of us would sing. So, but you don't know who's going to be singing what on any given version.
0: So it would just be kind of this jumble of like different parts that you know, would sound good together, but but...
1: not jumble in the sense of conceptually it was be worked out. So it's, it's, it's coherent jumble because it would be based on bars of music. How do you write a song like that? Uh, By breaking it down. It's so Devo, right? By breaking it down into small pieces and realizing that any piece can be connected with any piece and making sure that works.
0: So you've already written this or this has already been recorded or you're trying to get it going?
1: No, this was the idea. And uh, I keep working on it. I've written charts. I've written lyrics. I've, been waiting to record pieces and i keep saying to you know the other guys in the band let's get together and make this
0: real and and we'll see we'll see <laughs> it sounds really interesting so i'd love to hear i'd love to hear it so well great well thank you and and i'm sorry i missed your show last night and Not i hope there will be either. at least yeah. another you, you have any others scheduled or is that just kind of it for now unfortunately yeah
1: that's kind of it right now
0: well, come on over to Chicago, we'll do a last one in Chicago. We're in the Midwest, Heartland, and all that stuff. So you always won. That would be great. So all right, Thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, chatting with you. Thanks also, just for all of the awesome music you've given us over the years. It's really uh, made a difference in my life and a lot of other people's.
1: ok, Thanks, Mark.
0: That's all for episode thirty six of Carol Pop. Thanks again to Gerald Casale for spending so much time discussing Devo, his own work, and the state of our devolved world. Follow him on Twitter at GVC3Casale, C-A-S-A-L-E, and go to his website, GeraldVCasale.com to order Jihad Jerry albums, singles, shirts, and other merch. Thanks, as always, to web designer Marty Rosenbaum and to Luke Carlozzo, who recorded the Devo-inspired Carole Pop theme. Caropop is produced by Chris Swake, who's always on the smart patrol and does his work with a ton of love. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. And visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, and tune in again next week. Thanks.